When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, I got it. You got it? You got what? Your electricity is working? Your water is running? Yeah, there's even a toilet. It's fantastic. I thought Tom might skip this week because I'm sure you saw that the Red Sox just went through the worst seven games based on run differentials of any team since the 1899 Cleveland Spiders. They're spiraling out of control. By the end of the season... I think the Orioles will have passed them in the standings. What do you think? I just fled to a cabin when the Yankees lost to the Mets, but I'm I'm still in contact, unlike Tom. You're right. That was a tasty game. Did you actually did you actually like have to wire an antenna or uh, <laughs> did you bring the tinfoil from your bedroom? No, I was you know, I was playing in the annual cards game at this this place we go every the year. Annual cards With game family and is friends pinochle what is it is it gin rummy what do you got it was some texas hold'em and some omaha and i know hold'em but i haven't played as much omaha so i was deemed the underdog when we were playing omaha people thought this was very funny because you don't know it as well and you have an underdogs podcast so you're the underdog haha did you crack out the theme song i did start humming the theme song eight to shoot paul the runner loose ball it's good Joe Namath, number 12, has been the one big sidelight. He's come down here and he says the Jets are going to win. In fact, he doesn't even predict it. He says, I guarantee a Jet victory. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. Underdog, underdog. They're bigger, faster, stronger, more experienced. And on paper, they're just better. Oh my goodness, the longest shot has won the Kentucky Derby. Red strike and a stunning, unbelievable upset. Shock it all in college basketball. Underdog, Underdog. I expect you boys to go out there and not take this team lightly because I promise you, they're going to come at you with everything they've got. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! By George, the dream is alive. Speed of lightning, roar of thunder, fighting all who I guess there's only one thing left to do. Win the whole fucking thing. Yes, that's right. It's the Underdogs Podcast. We're back with a special summer vacation edition. Tom is getting some well-earned R&R. I'm Jordan Brenner coming to you from a cabin somewhere in the woods. Joined, as always, by my co-host, Peter Keating. We are going to tackle all the relevant summer issues. We've got a disappearing pitcher reappearing to make a difference at the trade deadline. We've got a take on a, a college football team that we think just might be an underdog this year by virtue of some good luck. But first, Peter, it's time to continue 
our quest to solve fantasy football. I'm not taking R&R, and I'm not in some cabin. I'm still sweating it off in uh, my basement. I think I'm the only one of us who watched The Bachelor, so we won't even talk about that. I won't further spoil it for my co-hosts. Once you spoil it, it's spoiled. You've spoiled it already. That is not true because there's so many different twists and turns. I really wish you'd just let me ask you my simple math slash crisis of faith question about The Bachelor, but you don't want to talk about what happened. No, 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 no. You started talking about the rose ceremony as our just superlative producer, Anthony Mays, pointed out. The rose ceremony is the dramatic part of the show, and you'd ruined it. You completely ruined it. I didn't ruin it. I talked about what happened at the beginning of it and therefore did not spoil the ending of it. That's all. That's all. It's okay. All right. Well, one thing you can't spoil yet is fantasy football. Not yet. And I am excited. Drafts are starting. Things are happening. And as we talked about last week, we want to take a fresh look through underdog eyes at this global phenomenon because there are a lot of things we take for granted and we're trying to draft teams. There are a lot of things that we haven't really taken a step back and looked at for truth. And there's so many places to get data, so many places to get rankings. We here at Underdogs want to take a look and see if there are any trends among undervalued players, if there's any sort of rhyme or reason to how the guys we didn't expect to have strong fantasy seasons come to be. So Peter, this week we took our next look and fantasy is still pretty unpredictable, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, our hope is, is by re-examining some fundamental statistical relationships that are now kind of baked into how almost everybody drafts, that we can find some ways where we can detect who's likely to depart from the herd, either in actual performance or in drafting mentality, right? <laughs> but the correlations between where players are drafted and how they go on to perform in that season are pretty good, not great, which might give you hope for finding outliers, except a lot of the other things we look at don't add much to the predictive value of anything else we're looking at. So let's take a look at that for a second. We we because we set up with our own questions. We're like, right, we're like, what categories could possibly give us a hint at some at some trend among undervalued or overvalued players? So we took the last five seasons, we looked at where running backs were ranked in terms of ADP before the draft. We looked at average fantasy points per week. We looked at total fantasy points for the season. One sort of accounts for injuries. One sort of accounts for longevity. And then we looked at a few things that we had hypotheses on. Maybe um, maybe switching teams would make a difference. Maybe young or old running backs would make a difference. So we looked at what year in the league they were. Maybe we look. Maybe a different QB would matter. And maybe the difference between that QB and the previous QB he played with. In terms of, uh, we use QBR as a cheat code there. Maybe that would make a difference. These are all reasonable, at least hypotheses for why performance might vary, right? Yeah, they're all they all make sense in the abstract. That's good because I, I came up with them, so uh, they, they, they should make sense. <laughs> well, we didn't we didn't reject any of them out of hand. You know, nobody yes, nobody. Thank you. It's it, it's not like guys whose last names begin with Z have a history of overperforming. Well, let's think about it. They might. I don't know. Amos Zaraway was was excellent. Yeah, I was, <laughs> uh, so the correlation between where running backs are drafted and how many points they score, whether you look at it at point points per game or points in the season, is about 0. 0.44. That's on a scale of negative one to one or zero to one. One would be a perfect fit. Zero means no relationship at all. 
And that's, that's okay. That's moderate. It's not great. Um, the thing is, the correlations between everything else we looked at and points per game or points per season is there all those are very weak. The number of years a guy has played, the number of games he played the season before, whether he switched to a new team, even whether or not he has a new quarterback. None of these add a lot to the to saying if you know where someone's drafted, do you know any better how he's going to go on to perform? Um, you don't want to say that's proof that it's all random. You know, there's an old saying that no evidence of something is not evidence of nothing, right? I mean, it may be that we're looking at the wrong variables. It may be that the the things we're using, like QBR to measure quarterback impact, aren't good enough metrics, or there just may be a lot of randomness stacked into this. I mean, if you look at running backs, basically there's a handful of real strong running backs who carry huge workloads every year. They're going to score the most fantasy points. Which one turns out to be number one and which one turns out to be number 24 basically depends on injuries. And there's a huge component of randomness to injuries. So every year, the number one guy is probably going to be who your projected player among the top four or five running backs is that, that you think is least likely to break down, right? I mean, that's why that's why Derrick Henry is probably not the number one overall choice or Christian McCaffrey. It's because we have recent memories of them getting hurt, right? So right, right. That's, that's essentially unpredictable. One thing we did find, though, is, is that the correlations between where someone's drafted and how they go on to do are much stronger for running backs who switch teams and go to teams with quarterbacks who are either much better or much worse. So drastic changes in environment do seem to make running back drafting more predictable. It's not to say they're better or they're going to get drafted higher or lower. It's just that the order makes more sense looking back at it once you look at the, the players who went to teams that are way better or way worse than they started out with. And that might just be because when you go to play for a much better or much worse quarterback, there's more attention on those situations. And maybe people collect more information about them. Right. And what's interesting about that this year is there actually has not been a lot of turnover at the running back position. If you look at the projected starters, at least today, on tops of most fantasy draft char uh, depth charts, excuse me, uh, it basically 28 of the 32 projected starting running backs were with their teams last year. And and you would only knock, you could knock it down to 27 if you say J.K. Dobbins wasn't the starter last year for the Ravens because he was hurt. But basically, we've seen most of these guys in lead dog roles on their current teams. The guys who are, who are switching teams, the really muddled situations are few and far between. you got the Dolphins where it's just a host of guys clamoring for playing time. you got Brees Hall with the Jets, a couple situations like that. But for the most part, there's a lot of familiarity at the top of the depth chart. So where you have to be really smart this year, maybe even more than others, are which running backs are poised to overtake someone this year and trying to predict injuries, which I, again, Peter, I'm, I'm with you. That's kind of a fool's errand, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of the, the change in performance from running backs with changing quarterbacks comes from guys who stayed on the same team, but went through drastic changes because a backup quarterback came in and had to play. Then there'll be a change in workload, changes in scheme, but that's very hard to predict in advance, right? So I'm wondering if this all means that rookies are 
the running backs to really watch because the relationship between where they're drafted and how they perform is even weaker. It's it's closer to random than where other running backs with any kind of experience are uh, drafted and how they go on to perform. So maybe if you can, maybe that means it, it always means if you can spot a good rookie. Um, you're ahead. You're even more ahead of the game. But maybe in this year in particular, there isn't a lot of focus on that handful of spots where rookies could come in, just claim a top running back position. I mean, how many are there? If there's if there's 28 teams that aren't switching running backs, uh, how many are there that are seriously considering starting rookies? Three or four? Well, you end up in these weird situations like Seattle, right, where you've got Kenneth Walker competing with Rashad Rashad Penny, who finished last season strong. But then you also have to factor in how much worse you think the offense is going to be because they've gone from Russell Wilson to Drew Locke, which is another thing we looked at in our study, right? You've got the Jets, who I think Brees Hall will end up starting as a rookie, competing with Michael Carter. Again, how good is that offense going to be on a whole? We know, though, that the single most predictive uh, factor for running back success is usage. So if Brees Hall is going to just get the bell cow amount of work at some point during the season, that maybe sets him apart from someone who's in timeshare in another offense, like James Cook in Buffalo, great offense, but Devin Singletary is still there. Josh Allen vultures touchdowns from any running back. So those are the types of things you're going to have to figure out in the next couple of weeks, paying attention to what coaches are saying, watching preseason games, seeing how the usage is going to break down. And seeing how the earliest drafts go, right? Because those drafts are going to incorporate information that's available about you know what the analytics and analysts and drafting communities all see in the early in the early playing trends at the at the risk of talking too much about running back backup running backs on the worst teams in the league which I know our producer Mays loves to squander time on I would I would bring up the Texans situation because um they've got Rex Burkhead who it's hard to see him being a bell cow for a full season they signed Marlon Mack gave him a 2 million dollar deal they also have Damian Pierce who Pro Football Focus had him graded as the highest running back in the FBS last year. And that's going to be a really interesting situation because I think there are going to be a lot of touches for running backs with the Houston Texans. So the other thing we talked about is, again, what happens when running back stays in the same situation and the offense changes dramatically, either in terms of scheme, quarterback talent, or other things. So one really, really interesting test case is actually going to be with our New York Giants. Uh, Saquon Barkley has been nothing short of a massive disappointment the past couple of years post-injury. But the other thing you can say is so has that entire offense. Now you've got maybe a reasonable coach and offensive scheme. They have certainly upgraded their line to a chance where they actually might block someone. And I tend to think that Daniel Jones is better than he's gotten credit for because he's had no time to throw. So Barkley's ADP has dropped. His rankings have dropped. In the consensus rankings I'm looking at right now, he's 12th among running backs. This is a guy who a couple years ago, pre-injury, was a top two consensus pick. So if you can get a guy like that right as a top 10 pick, that gives you a leg up on other teams. If you can get, if you can solve the 49ers situation and know what to do with Elijah Mitchell, who I'm seeing ranked 23rd right now, but certainly based on what a, a full-time running back in a run-heavy, well-coached scheme could do, you know, if he ends up being a top 10 player, if you get that right, that's a leg up. But you have to have really good strength of your convictions on guys like that. And there's there's really no cheat code to forecast that usage, right? No, there's no metric for scheme, right? Number one. And at the same time, 
scheme is becoming more important, relatively more important, because injuries are getting more prevalent. There's there's this this hope that every team that goes through injury has that its fans share that says, if we could just get all our guys on the field at the same time healthy, this is what we'd look like. And that that ideal image is what they carry around in their mind, right? Well, guess what? That happens less and less and less often because guys are getting hurt more often and hurt for greater lengths of time. So the proportion of your schedule where you can count on having, you know, your five key guys on the field all together and having that be enough, having the triumph of talent be enough, that's that's not always there anymore. It's there. I, I think it's there less and less often. Just to quantify the, the number of injuries that are taking place and injuries have a, are not totally random, but they are scattered everywhere, right? And the number of days lost and salary loss going up. That means you have to have your edge somewhere else, either in how rapidly you respond to injuries, which is an interesting factor, and I, I haven't seen that quantified, or in getting the most out of players you have, right? And that that's what's and, and playing the right combinations of them. And that scheme, and and somebody stepping into the right scheme can look fantastic. Somebody look stepping into the wrong scheme, surrounded by injuries, can be completely rendered useless, like Kenny Galladay, for example. Exactly. And speaking of scheme, one of the things I thought that would be a little clearer, again, was in looking at this change in QBR from one quarterback to another, that we'd at least find some better sense of how good an offense was and how much that boosted the running back. So there were two things that jumped out to me when I was doing that research. One was how jumpy QBR even was among all but a handful of quarterbacks, right? You have these random season where a guy like Mitch Trubisky has all of a sudden looks really strong and you're view of him and the Bears offense back then turned out being skewed. Or guys, right before a breakout, we didn't really know how good they were, so we didn't know that Josh Allen was going to be a superstar the year he became a superstar if we're just looking at last season's stats. So we have that sort of same problem as we're trying to forecast what guys moving into different offenses that we think are quarterbacked by either someone weak, Daniel Jones, someone strong, take your pick, are going to do this year. those factors change a lot as well. And, you know, until we can more accurately pick, predict QB performance, it's hard to predict overall offensive performance. And then the other piece of it is, even if you think and know an offense is going to be good, let's take the Chiefs, right? I think a lot of us thought Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, when they drafted him, was just going to be, you know, lock top 10 fantasy running back, if not better, because that offense is scoring so many points, he'll get, X number of goal line opportunities just by default. He'll get touches, and it it hasn't played out that way. So even knowing an offense is great doesn't guarantee fantasy success, right? That's absolutely right. And I helped roll out QBR at ESPN. I like QBR. QBR is a lot more effective at measuring quarterback play than passer rating is, which has some glaring deficiencies and just you know doesn't count the running game at all, which has become more important for some many key quarterbacks, but it's a retrospective statistic. It's designed to include the value of moments in a game. It's 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 designed to measure not just a play's effectiveness, but its impact on winning or losing a game. So it can bounce around a lot. The question with all of this is now a lot of our statistics are retrospective. You look and measure the performance and you kind of have a sense of who won and who lost. We got to figure out, we got to do a better job as a community of figuring out which statistics are more, a little bit more granular without having to watch film, but are still 
prospective and predictive. I think something like yards after car- yards after contact as a percentage of team attempts or touches would probably be really good. And, and we'll, we're going to take a look at stats like those over the coming weeks because you're right, Edwards Hilaire, by the time... By the time last season ended, I think he was down to yards after contact per attempt of something like two and a half yards, which is which is really inefficient. And so were his yards per route run. And those are kind of big. When those numbers drop, those are big red flags. Either other teams have figured out what to do to cover somebody or, or, or hit him or to scheme him or somebody's speed is disappearing for reasons that may or may not have to do with injuries. But you got to, you got to, we got to figure out which of those are the best to look at and then watch them in real time and watch what happened over the last half of last season before we start to draft for this season. Well, and then you still have to deal with situations where even if there are underlying metrics or an eye test or something that tells you one guy's better, that coaches tend to be stubborn and don't look at those things. So look at the Cowboys, right? A lot of people think Tony Pollard might be the best. And it's pretty clear that Ezekiel Elliott is not giving away too many touches to him. And you know, maybe there are factors we don't realize blitz pick up things like that, but also like teams are invested in players financially. Teams are invested in players emotionally. Coaches are attached to players for a variety of reasons. So even if we could predict, right, who should be getting more usage, it doesn't always work that way. Right. It can take time. I mean, Dallas is a great test case of that because you have the owner who, God help us, Jerry Jones gets an inordinate amount of tension for a team that wins that many games, for owning a team that wins that many games, which is a lot of games, but not more than any other team in the league. And he's already putting the pressure on to be quote unquote viable in the playoffs this year. And you have a coach who did not have a good end to the season last year, strategically or results wise. And so if ever there were the pressure were on to make a change with without emotional baggage, it should be now, right? I mean, if you're going to do something with Zeke, I mean, it's hard to say Elliot hasn't had his chance over the last year or two. He made you know he made to come back and carried them as far as they got last year, but that really wasn't far enough. And if they're just going to run into the you know they're going to get rid of half or almost all of their wide receivers and then just run Zeke Elliott into the ground, um, have, have, has anybody learned anything? You know, it's kind of my response. The answer is not as much as you'd hope, right? You know, and so again, it's it just going back and looking at last year. We talked about this a little last week. It's just really interesting looking at um, the top 10 picks in, in ADP last year and, and where they actually finished. So Christian McCaffrey was number one. He finished 44th in total points, obviously injuries. Dalvin Cook was number two, finished 15th in total points. Injuries not to the extent of, of McCaffrey when he played, he was good. Derrick Henry, number three, finished 14th overall. Injuries, even though he was number one in points per game. Alvin Kamara, fourth overall finished ninth in total points, had a bit of an injury situation, and also the offense took a step backwards. Zeke was fifth in ADP and actually finished sixth overall in total points. Nick Chubb was sixth in ADP, finished seventh in total points. That played out pretty much exactly as you thought in his role versus Kareem Hunt. Uh, Aaron Jones was seventh in running back ADP, finished 13th in total points. There was some, some, he was banged up a bit, and A.J. Dillon came along. Uh, Jonathan Taylor, we know, was eighth in ADP and was the number one fantasy running back in total points. I think sharp people saw that one coming. Good offensive line, a lot of talent, but he stayed healthy, and a guy like Derrick Henry didn't. Ninth was Saquon Barkley. We talked about him. Injuries, terrible offense, finished 34th in total points. And 10th was Najee Harris, a running back that people got right, finished fourth in total points. Again, his 
big, big factor was that he just got a ton of usage and he was even more valuable in PPR leagues because Ben Roethlisberger couldn't throw the ball more than four and a half yards down the field. And, you know, every little swing pass was an extra point. Okay, so of that group that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. who is the consensus number one pick to go overall number one? Who's going to have the lowest ADP this year? You know know who it is. I mean, who's going to be the number one overall pick consensus, right? Who is it right now? Right now, Jonathan Taylor is number one in most consensus rankings I've seen, followed by McCaffrey, and then our friend, Austin Eckler. (laughs) That is awesome, and he is the true friend of the show and triumph of the underdog. But why? my point is, why is Taylor number one? You know why he's number one? Because he was number one last year, and not coincidentally, he didn't get hurt. What reason does anyone have to say that McCaffrey or Derrick Henry are going to score fewer points than Taylor, other than the recency bias of not having seen Taylor hurt the way we've seen the other guys hurt? And if you put on to that, What if we just can't predict those injuries? Then where are we left? I mean, we're left throwing darts. Well, I think one of the things we're going to have to look at is what happens post-injury. We didn't didn't get to that yet, right? But how many running backs after they've had a serious injury, how many running backs after they've fallen out of the consistent top three, five, get back to that level? I don't know. I don't don't have a... I, I think we all feel like shelf lives for running backs tend to be short. So... Once they lose a little something, are they ever the same? I don't know. That would be a great thing to study. You got some free time this week? Well, yes, but it also raises <laughs> the question that I wanted to ask you, which is yeah. if the running back data leads us to the idea, the feeling that we might be throwing darts, what about if what about if we what about if we accept some of these low correlation numbers and we say it's really hard to predict performance from draft position? Now I know there's a lot more research we need to do. But what what if the running backs aren't as predictable and don't deserve to be clustered as close to the top as most drafters believe? What if this should be pointing us towards considering the zero running back strategy? You know, I go back and forth over whether I want to give it a shot this year. I get it. But the problem is, like, take Jonathan Taylor last year. I felt so good about him. I can't imagine having had the opportunity to draft him, passed on him, and then you lose so many points to your competition. I get what you're saying. And then the other thing with the zero running back strategy, or even if you do the one anchor back in the first round and then go Mm -hmm. zero RB till the late rounds, you still have to be really smart about casting the right lottery tickets, right? And we're not getting the clues we want. Well, that's true. But I'm I'm wondering if the performance of anchor wide receivers, Justin Jefferson, Cooper Cup, Jamar Chase, Stephon Diggs, are more closely tied to relatively more predictable quarterback performance than any running back's performance is. It's funny you mentioned that, Peter, because A, that's our next topic of study. We're going to look at wide receivers the same way we looked at running backs and maybe a couple other categories. And let's go through the same exercise to start that we just did with the running backs. So here's last year's top 10 receivers in terms of ADP and how they finished the season, okay? Devontae Adams was number one. He finished fifth in total points. Fine. Tyreek Hill was number two, finished seventh. Stefan Diggs, third, finished eighth. DK Metcalf was fourth and 10th in total points, 18th in points per game. He had some injury issues, wasn't fully great. Russell Wilson was out a bit. Calvin Ridley was fifth. We know what happened there. He finished 107th in total points because he didn't play. DeAndre Hopkins was sixth, was 39th in total points. He looks like he's fallen off a cliff. Justin Jefferson was 7th in ADP, finished 4th in total points. A.J. Brown was 8th, finished 32nd. He had injuries. 
Keenan Allen was ninth, finished 15th in total points. CeeDee Lamb was 10th, finished 14th in total points. Is, was, is there a little more consistency there just in that group than we saw from the running backs? Yeah. Of course, we finished, we completely missed on the clear cut number one in total points and points per game. That's Cooper Cup, who was drafted 19th on average in drafts. So we'll look at the correlations, you know, more strongly in over more years. But I need I need more convincing about the consistency of receivers right now before I'm ready to go a full on zero RB. Fair enough. I mean, I think it also requires maybe a little bit more attention to even the other positions. Like instead of streaming defenses, what if you work hard to find the defense that could score you 200 points in a way that no kicker is going to? What if you have a chance to get one of the top? I mean, what is the number where if I say you have a chance to get one of the top X tight ends, how, what's that number that it actually makes it worth entering the discussion about top running backs and wide receivers? These are these are questions we can look into and try to solve. Those, those are actual questions with, with, with number answers. So we can do that. Right. So there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered. A lot of questions that still need to be asked. As we mentioned last week, we'd love to hear from you. What are you looking at differently in fantasy football? What would you like us to study? What are some hypotheses you might have to find underdog players at different positions? So hit us up on Twitter at Jordan Brenner, at Peter Keating NJ, and at Tom Haverstrow. Let us know what you're thinking. In the meantime, we'll let you know what we're thinking about a, a little college football. That's coming around before you know it. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The headlines remind us daily the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over 3 million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not ready hour foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Peter, one of your favorite topics to look at in, in football in general is luck. 
And I think you may have found a team that was really unlucky last year and could be a team to keep an eye on this year. Well, look, uh, one thing we can do as the Underdogs podcast is draw your attention to analytics that are clear as day, ringing bells, raising red flags that for one reason or another are still underreported and underinterpreted by fans and the mainstream media, um, but that but that look good for teams that make teams that you think don't look that good look a lot better. Let me put it to you that way. Uh, one of those, again and again and again over the last decade, we've learned that teams may have some ability to force fumbles, you know, because you hit guys, or to commit fumbles, you know, because you have slippery hands. But once a ball is loose, recovering fumbles is essentially a random act, okay? Every year, uh, college football teams recover about half of their own fumbles. It was 54% last year. It was 50% the year before that. There is no relationship from year to year in how often teams recover their own fumbles or recover opponent fumbles. In 2020, Boise State recovered 60, uh, recovered zero, none, recovered none of their opponent fumbles. Last year, it was 63%. That number bounces around all the time. And in case you're thinking that some teams are good at coaching players on both sides of the ball, there's also no relationship between how good or bad teams are at recovering their own fumbles and the rate at which they recover their opponent's fumbles. Those numbers also bounce around all over the place. So, when a team happens to be on the plus or minus side of recovering fumbles, either their own fumbles or the other team's fumbles, just don't believe it's going to last. It will always get reported as, we worked really hard on recovering fumbles. We've drilled and practiced and intensely attempted to pick up bouncing balls during practice. We wanted it more. You know, we, we were gritty. You'll hear all that stuff. Recovering fumbles is random. Now, we all know that sometimes random chance can stick with you over the course of an entire season. So when I went looking for data to back this up, you know, there were a handful of teams that were lucky at picking up their own fumbles and their opponent fumbles over the course of the entire season last year. The luckiest, might I say the fumble luckiest team of all was Louisiana. Now, Jordan, I don't know, have we decided, are we going to call Louisiana Louisiana? Are we going to call them Louisiana Lafayette? Are we going to call them ULL? We're just going to call them the Raging Cajuns? What's our what's our preference? I've always been a Raging Cajun fan myself. All right. So the Carvilles, Raging Cajuns, yeah. recovered 75% of their fumbles and 76% of their opponent fumbles last year. That was good enough to make them look better than they really were. Ranked by the simple rating system, the simplest, literally the simplest way to adjust teams' margins of victory by their strength of schedule, they were the 39th best team in the country last year, but they were ranked 16th in the AP poll. They made the Sun Bowl, which they did a good job in, and they won. Um, so that's one extreme. At the other end of the spectrum, there's a team that went just 7-6, and six, partially, although not, not notoriously so, but one contributor to that was... They recovered only 22% of their own fumbles and only 33% of their opponent fumbles. That was Mississippi State. That's under Mike Leach. Now, you may remember if you watched them at all last year that Mississippi State lost three games by fewer than three points. You can't tell me a bouncing fumble going the right way rather than the wrong way wouldn't have made some difference there. They also had a terrible kicking game. Um, they went 14 for 25 on field goals. Um, one of their kickers declared for the NFL draft after getting injured. 
The other one was terrible. Mike Leach actually had open practices, practices open to the public where people could try out to be the field goal kicker. They've just signed a five-star kicking recruit out of junior college because Mike Leach is the kind of guy who I don't think will lose games at the margin for very long. You know, when Bill Parcells took over teams time and time and time again, he immediately improved their special teams. And so no more 90-yard kickoff returns allowed. And focus on special teams forcing fumbles if not able to recover them. Those little details can make a big difference when you're on the cusp of being much better. Well, Mississippi State was 7-6 and six last year. Um, just by luck, regressing to normal, regression to the mean of bad luck into average luck will be worth a couple of games for that team. Now, are they going to win the SEC? No, probably not. But when we come to pick underdogs for the college football season and Mississippi State is, I don't know, going to be something like two plus 2,000 to win the conference and plus 4,000 to win the national title, you know, if a ball bounces the right way, as I say, instead of the wrong way against Arkansas or even Alabama, um, they're going to be in it. They're going to look a lot better, even though that's just luck smoothing out. So there you go. Fumble luckiest Louisiana, fumble unluckiest Mississippi State, also with terrible special teams. Well, the Mississippi State thing is really interesting to me because, first of all, so you have a team, it's not like they were god-awful last year. They had a winning record, yet they're currently being picked sixth out of seven teams uh, in the SEC West by by the media. They are pl- plus 12,500 to win the SEC That's in 12. betting markets, yet yeah, they've got Will Rogers back at quarterback. They've got eight starters returning on offense, another eight on defense. They had the number 26 ranked recruiting class in the country, so not a bad crop of players. And you mentioned the kicking chains. To your point, this is the Underdogs podcast. That fits a lot of things, that a lot of boxes we like to check when we're looking for deep, deep underdogs. Jordan, I think as so often the words you're looking for but struggling to find are thank you. <laughs> Jordan, all I can say is you're welcome. Mississippi State, put some money down for me. Thank me later. There are a few days where I'm glad to know you, and and this is one of them. I'm sure tomorrow will not be, but today, today I celebrate. I wish we had known about before researching this, the open to the public tryouts for the Mississippi State kickers. I, I wish we had been there. I mean, you or I could have, we could have tried out. Well, that would have been the ultimate underdog experience. Trying out to be Mike Leach's new kicker. How far a field goal do you think you could make these days? With a regulation football? Yes, with a regulation football. Let's see. And I have to measure this in yards? Because I could say 30, but that would be feet. <laughs> I think I'd make it 300 inches. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen you trying out as a kicker. The other thing I'm really disappointed that you didn't follow up on, because I really felt like you were taking the lead on this, is there's something really important happening from um, August 11th to the 21st in middle America, we were so graciously invited at one point to take our podcast to the Iowa State Fair. After riding the Cyclone bandwagon and March Madness, another giant killing success. Peter, where's my plane ticket? I I don't think Tom's heard anything from you. Why aren't we scheduled to appear at the Iowa State Fair yet? Well, Jordan, you're in a cabin. Tom is with his in-laws. So I didn't feel I could go out and purchase tickets myself. But if you're giving this the green light, there's going to be plenty of other Iowa State opportunities. We'll we'll go we'll go cyclone it up. Don't worry. I haven't forgotten. I want to be in Des Moines in two weeks, and I know Anthony Mays. He of the corn puzzle 
Twitter account would also like to be there. So can you make this happen? We're going to get little slingshots and we're going to fire them at each other. It's going to be like college game day, except for underdogs. We'll fire basketballs from slingshot at each other and take take this whole thing on the road. Well, it would be a hot time in Iowa and a hot time on the podcast because it is time once again for Peter's Hot Corner. The Hot Corner! Feeling hot, hot, hot. Feeling hot, hot, hot. Feeling hot, hot, hot. What you got for us, PK? We have an underdog pick so deep, this athlete literally disappeared. My Hot Corner recommendation for anyone looking for pennant, stretch help, or even more important, dynasty leagues in fantasy baseball, for the first time in weeks, Eduardo Rodriguez, the lefty pitcher for the Detroit Tigers, reappeared. <laughs> he is back in contact with his team. Not only that, he is now going through a working a workout program in South Florida. Now look, Eduardo Rodriguez, you know him uh, as a, the Red Sox lefty, where he won 45 games over three years. Um, then he signed a big contract last November with the Tigers had a bumpy start to the season, and then he left town. He disappeared. He went back to Venezuela. Uh, only reports that available were that there was some kind of marital issue. Might have involved his kids, maybe not. No reason to speculate any further, except to say that around the 4th of July, there were all kinds of headlines about how he and the team hadn't talked since he left. Well, this past week, the GM, Al Avila, said that... Um, A.J. Hinch, the Tigers manager, and Rodriguez have actually talked, and now he's working through a throwing program, and he's going to make minor league starts starting out in probably single A, then triple A, and that he would be could be back with the Tigers by late August. And this is a big deal because I think he's a completely forgotten man, but he's only 29. I mean, literally, he was. Yes. He, I mean, apparently everything worked out. I'm really glad. I mean, when you hear family issue right. and somebody's left and not in I mean, who knows, right? And I'm just glad he's apparently healthy and things are straightening out. Here's the deal. Um, last year, he had a 4.74 ERA, but he got that big contract from Detroit because that doesn't really represent his skills. He had the second worst batting average allowed on balls in play. Nobody allows a BABIP of 366 for too long. That's what he had last year. He was giving up line drives on just 22.4% of balls put in play, which is very low, career high strikeout rate, career low walk rate. And this guy came back from myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart muscles, mm -hmm. which he got because of COVID in 2020. Uh, but he made 31 starts last year, no ill effects from the COVID. And um, look, the Tigers were willing to spend money. There were only a, a handful of teams around baseball that spent $75, 75 million or more dollars a piece on two different players last offseason. The Tigers are one of them. They used that money to sign Eduardo Rodriguez and Javi Baez, um, but they have a historically bad lineup this year. Nothing has worked out for their lineup. They're 3-15 and 15 in blowouts, which is an indication of team quality. So they need him to come back and be an ace. He's going to slot right back in as their number one starting pitcher. And as far as I can tell, he is on very few people's radar. So there you go. I don't think Erod will let you down. And in fact, you can send me an email and call it an e-bomb about Erod anytime you want. Sorry, I was just typing an email to you. <laughs> You're never going to guess the subject. <laughs> it's an e-bomb. 
It's going to be great. I have stuck with Erod on my fantasy team all year. We have an insane, long-lasting dynasty league, but I'm keeping him. I'm keeping him till next year to see what he's got. You know, it's funny. He would have been an interesting trade candidate if he'd gotten back closer to the deadline, right? Well, you know what's interesting? He's been on the restricted list, which is where you go when you're not playing but you're not hurt, and you need permission from the commissioner's office to reinstate anybody from the restricted list after August 1st. And I think he would have been a trade candidate, but I don't think the Tigers wanted to mess around with his contract. Whatever happened, I think they wanted to give him time and welcome him back. I don't know if it's sunk costs or really they're just being nice or they really believe in him. I don't know. But I think he was right. In a rational world, it probably would have been an interesting deal there to be built. But I think they wanted to keep him no matter what. It's interesting. What should we do coming up? Is there time left to do revised Cy Young picks? Probably not, right? I mean, for next week or coming up, should we do something like who's going to be the pitcher of the month in September? What's there still left to look forward to in baseball for for awards? You are so transparent, Peter Keating. You are so transparent. What? What? What are you talking about? Oh, the pitcher of the month. Oh, gee, this has nothing to do with the fact that Jacob deGrom is about to come back and you just want to talk about him. Well, that's, that's quite an allegation. Besides... The National League pitchers have going to be a lot more competition because they all have to compete against Max Scherzer, the other the other all-time Mets great. So I don't know. But if there are some late-season underdogs to to pick, we should, we should figure out what those would be. Yeah, well, I think we're going to be able to take a nice look post-trade deadline in our next show and maybe see who's changed, changed places. Maybe your little Cubs theory that worked out so terribly will work somewhere else. Somebody goes to a better infield defense, throws ground balls, numbers will improve, you know, because the Andrelton Simmons theory really came came alive this year with you and your Cubbies. It hasn't been on the field all year. So you know where that's not going to come true? Nobody's going to go to Boston and benefit from that defense. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Tom might come back and half his team will be gone by next week's show. If you graph the trade market for J.D. Martinez, what it looked like. It started up <laughs> high, right? Went way down, and now it's way up high again. Well, Tom did tell us they would be the the team of the second half. We just didn't think that was because they were going to help half a dozen other teams with their players fleeing town. Yeah, I think they're in sale mode now. That's a wrap for this show. Thanks again to our super producer, Anthony Mays, who's going to cover up all our mistakes, so you'll never hear them. And next week, we'll have Tom back, which will immediately increase our production about 200%. Looking forward to hearing from you all. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.